So when we left off with our hero last week, things were really, 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 really bad. They weren't good. David had made a colossal, a colossal mistake. And if you haven't been here for a few weeks, we're in the middle of a series on the life of David. And when we think about David, we think King David. Uh, but before David was a king, he was just a guy. He was just a dude. Uh, and last week, we looked at a story where he made a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. And so in today's episode of The Life of David, uh, we find David right on the heels of this incredibly bad decision that left him in a terrible, terrible place, and he's on the verge of making another horrible decision. This is not kind of his, his, his main place. You can leave those up. Uh, you can leave those up. Thank you. Uh, I kind of like to see people. I like the room lit, so we're not going to lower the lights when I preach. Um, and left him in this terrible place, and he's going to do it again, because that's generally what we do when we're on a downward spiral, right? We just kind of make bad decisions that reinforce our bad decisions, and we keep going in that direction. But fortunately for David, at the last minute, as we're going to see, and when I say last minute, I mean the last possible minute, he is saved by a woman. All throughout history, Men have been saved by women at the very last minute from making really, really bad decisions. Can I get an amen, husbands? Yes, okay. Uh, but before we get to that, there's this, the golden rule. Familiar with the golden rule? The golden rule is great. The golden rule goes like this. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. We all know it. For some of you, you grew up with that. For some of you, you grew up with that and you didn't even know it was a Bible thing. It was just a thing. Um, but it is a Bible thing. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And the golden rule is great until you are mistreated by someone else. And once you're mistreated by others, then we want to change the golden rule into a different rule. The rule will go like this. Do unto others as others have done unto you. <laughs> just, kind of, just a slight modification makes it all better for us. Cut them off and break check them as they have cutteth off thee in traffic, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how Jesus should have taught it. And in the moment when people have mistreated you or mistreated someone you love, but specifically when they've mistreated you, it actually feels right to treat them the same way they just treated you. It comes very naturally. There's something that just seems like it's the right thing to do. I'm going to get even. That when you're mistreated, you mistreat people the same way they've mistreated you or you treat people the same way that they've treated you. And then there's this very complicated and twisted thing that happens on the other side of that. Um, and that's when you've been mistreated by someone that you can't mistreat back, so you mistreat someone else. And then it just becomes this tangled web, web of mean behavior, and uh, you know, you're in an environment where you can't get back at that environment, so you find another environment where you can get all powered up and you can mistreat people in a different place. So that your anger or what's going on inside of you because you've been wronged, it gets returned not back to the people who, where you've been mistreated, but you take it somewhere else and you take it out on other people. And they look at you like, why are you treating me this way? And we've probably all been there at some point. Because the truth is, when we feel powerless in one relationship or in one place, we often compensate in another area or in another relationship. I'll take it out on you because I can't take it out on him. I can't take it out on her. I can't take it out on them. And so then we have this really weird dynamic where we do unto others as someone else has done unto you. I mean, we are so far now from the teaching of Jesus, but it's what plays out all the time in our lives. And then things are so complicated, you can't ever get everything back in the box. It's just, it's a mess. 
Now, there's a problem with this whole approach to life, and y'all are very smart, so you probably understand this and you know where we're going. The problem with getting back at people or paying people back in kind for how they've treated you or to use the vernacular that we normally use, the problem with getting even, the problem with getting even is that it makes you even. And it makes you even with someone you don't even like. Why do you want to get even with someone that you don't even like? With someone you don't like what they did, and now you're even with them. That doesn't make any sense, but that's what we do. Why would you want to be even with someone that you think you're better than? Why would you want to be even with someone that I think I'm already ahead of or I behave better than? Why would you want to be like the person you don't like? Because when you get there, you're acting like that person. And that brings us to part three in our series on the life of David. Now, real quick catch-up. The story takes place about 1,000 B.C., about 3,000 years ago from today. Uh, and there's so much extraordinary detail in Scripture about the life of David. And I'm going to have to, I, I, I'm really in this series having to skim through so much of the story, so many details, and just kind of pause and focus on some key moments. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and read the story of David for yourself because it, there's just so much more than what we're covering to, uh, in this series. Um, again, about 1,000 years B.C., David steps onto the scene, the, steps into the pages of history as a warrior, a giant killer. That's when he kind of comes to light. Uh, he was 15 years old when he kills Goliath. Uh, he immediately becomes a folk hero. He becomes the most popular and well-known person in the entire nation of Israel. And then something horrible happens. He becomes a fugitive because King Saul is jealous. David has married one of his daughters. David is best friends with his son. Saul sees David as a massive threat to his kingdom. And so he runs David out, and David becomes a fugitive. And in today's story, we pick up with David in his fugitive years, surrounded by his mighty men. That's what Scripture calls uh, the guys that fought, fought along David's side. They're David's mighty men. It's kind of like a Robin Hood thing. Uh, living off the land, trying to stay out of trouble, trying to stay away from the Philistines, but at the same time, not feeling welcome in his own country. He has no place to call home. And here's where the story begins in 1 Samuel 25, verse 2. There was a wealthy man from Man who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. Now, when we read that, we think, I have no idea what that means. Now, here in North Texas, you know, especially kind of on the, the, the edge of the Metroplex as we go north, we have a better idea than most Americans do as to what this means. That, that stands out a little bit more to us because we're a little more agrarian in our knowledge here. Um, but the people in ancient times, if they heard what I just read, they would say, wow, that dude is rich. That guy is loaded. So it's a super wealthy guy, and the story continues. The, this man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. In other words, he was harsh. He was a pain. Nobody liked this guy. Obviously successful, but as we see in our culture, there's plenty of successful people that aren't exactly the nicest people to hang around with, right? Well, this guy kind of fits that category. And as it turns out in this story, he was his name. He was a fool. Uh, the name Nabal means fool. And the story continues. 1 Samuel 25, 4 and 5, when David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Now, let me stop and say something about shearing sheep real quickly. 
uh, in the season when herdsmen uh, or people who are shepherds or had lots of flocks, lots of sheep, and they sheared their sheep, uh, when they did that, this was like an annual paycheck. Okay, this is, this is when you cashed in. This was a yearly audit of your financial structure. This is when a person with sheep found out how wealthy they really were, and Nabal is about to find out that he's much wealthier than he thought he would be. So this was typically a very festive time, lots of partying, because the owner's feeling generous. The owner is reassured of their wealth. Okay, I've cashed in for another year. They come to the end of the season, and basically everybody's getting a big paycheck. So here's the message. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. So David sends his guys. Essentially what David is saying through the messengers that he sent was that basically, hey, Nabal, if you have a prophet, part of the reason you have a prophet is due to the protection of our men throughout the year. Because our men were in the wilderness where your sheep were and your shepherds weren't at any point. First of all, they could have stolen sheep from you, but they didn't. So consequently, there's this sense in which we protected your shepherds from other harm as well. And we didn't steal anything ourselves. And he goes on and he says this. Ask your own men and they will tell you what is, this is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? And then he makes the ask. Okay, here he goes. He builds up this whole thing, build up, and now comes the ask. Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. This is not a huge request here. They're like, can you just kind of give us some food to carry us through a few days? We helped you. We stuck with you. We protected you. You didn't even know we were doing it, but we just decided to bless you. Now would you in return maybe... Give us a little bit of food. In other words, since we were good to you, would you be good to us? Um, and so knowing the whole time during this whole season, our men, David, we could have taken any time we want, anything we wanted. We could have already had what we're asking for and then some, but we didn't. And so we're coming to you now. Uh, David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? Now, <laughs> obviously, he's, he's asking who is David, and then he calls him the son of Jesse. So uh, the guy has a pretty good idea who David is. And as I said, he's the most famous person in all of Israel. Everybody knows who David is. So Nabal is just playing a game here. There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. In other words, I know who you're talking about. I know who sent you. This David guy, he's just a rogue He's an outlaw. He's a fugitive. He's out of favor with the king. I know the truth. And besides that, I didn't ask for his help. I didn't ask for his protection. I don't owe him, and I don't owe you anything. Then he continues, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said, at which point the soundtrack would change to something a little ominous. And the music would begin to build in the background, and it sounds really, really intense, and rightfully so. Verse 13, get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. That escalated quickly. We're going to war. We're going to war. So the best that we can tell from the story, David's self-control muscle is kind of worn out here. He's done. His patience is worn out, and part of that maybe 
you know, and I'm reading between the lines here, but it, it's a natural assumption. He's been on the run now for several years. He's having to live off the land when he should be living at home or living in a palace or perhaps even be king by now. I mean, this is his right. God has already told him. It's his. He's trying to do the right thing, and then when he did the wrong thing, as we talked about last week, he repented. He's trying not to side with the enemies of Israel, but at the same time, Israel itself won't embrace him, won't support him as the hero that he is, and he's just tired, and he's worn out, and he's done. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've gotten to the point where you just throw up your hand and say, I'm just done. I can't take it anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. And when we get to that place, we have two options. We can turn to God, or we can lash out at those around us. And so David is, in, you know, this is in some way, this is kind of like the last straw. And maybe as we mentioned earlier, maybe this is a case where his frustration is getting redirected towards somebody that maybe doesn't deserve the wrath that he's about to unleash. I mean, David's true frustration is with Saul, right, who's forced him to be on the run, and yet he's taking it out on Nabal. There's just so much pent-up stuff. This is the last straw. So he says, guys, get your swords as he puts his own sword on. In our world, maybe you've heard this phrase before, hurt people, hurt people. And that's kind of where David is. David's been hurt. David's been messed up, and he's lashing out. So if you've been hurt in the past by somebody, that you may go hurt somebody that didn't hurt you because hurt people hurt people. And maybe this is an example of hunted people hunt people. Okay, David's been hunted for so long, he's going hunting. And uh, David is being hunted by King Saul, Saul's army. Now David's going to go hunt somebody that he feels like has been unkind or unfair to him, where he has more control over the situation. And the cool thing is, we find out in this text a little bit later on, as David straps on his sword, and as he begins the journey uh, to find Nabal and to pay him back for his unkindness or this injustice as he considers it, he begins to do what all of us do, Okay. And it's, it's so relatable. And so what he does is he begins to, in his mind, justify what he's about to do. He begins to build this up. He begins to talk himself into it. He begins having that imaginary conversation, building up a head of steam, because he knows that he probably shouldn't be doing this. But he gets all emotionally worked up, and he starts to justify his actions even before he gets there. And so often, we're really not sure that what we're about to do is a thing we ought to do, but we talk to ourselves, and we convince ourselves that we should go down that path. We talk ourselves into it, and just a minute in the text, we actually get an insight into what David is telling himself as he moves in this horrible direction of retaliation towards Nabal. Now, fortunately, there are other characters in this story, not just David and Nabal. The story continues in verse 14. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail, his wife, and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. Now, Abigail's no dummy. She's probably been in this position before. She's heard these things. She knows who her husband is. And so she's like, well, this is not news to me. But here's the thing. It was against David. It was against the greatest warrior in Israel. It was against this man who is an outlaw, who is living in, in uh, exile, and she wonders, hey, this is not good. So the servant was there. He saw what happened. David's men came. They were super kind. They were super polite. They honored Nabal, and they said, hey, if you got a little extra, could you share it with us? And so the servant saw this exchange take place. 
These men have been very good to us. We never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. So she's, he's recounting to Abigail the truth of what David's men had already told Nabal. Like, hey, he was, he was straight. Like, this is really how they did uh, for us over the last year. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. So that means probably his men were like, hey, uh, Nabal, you might want to rethink your position on this one because I don't want to die. They're trying to convince him that this is the wrong direction to go, and he is not hearing it. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread. Wouldn't we all? I mean, that's obviously the first thing you want to do. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered. How do you carry all this? Anyway, uh, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. Probably a smart move. Uh, I'm not sure he would have approved of her plan. All this detail, all this drama. Guys, you should read the Bible. Like, the Bible has some incredible stories in it. This is great stuff, great intrigue. All right, the story goes on. As she was riding her donkey into, you got to picture this, okay? Uh, so there's this ravine. David and his men are snaking their way down into the ravine on one side because they're going down into this fertile valley where the sheep shearing is going on. A mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. So she sees his men. They're all armored up. They've got all ready to go. They've got their weapons, and they're headed towards her village where all of this is taking place. Now, this is where the story tells us what David is thinking. We get inside his thoughts. Now, we get inside David's head later in life as he writes the Psalms, or a great portion of the Psalms, and we got to hear his heart after the fact. But here we get some real-time feedback as what's going on in David's mind. Uh, because he's had this long journey, he's building up ahead of steam, he's about to butcher some innocent people, He's about to butcher people he's never met. He's about to let loose this rage that has been building up in him. Perhaps all of these years that he's been on the run from King Saul, and the text tells us this. David had just been saying, so he's talking out loud to his men, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. And What has he done? How has he responded to my goodness? But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Okay then, David. He's getting ready. He's getting his men ready. As you know what, I know it's going to be tough, but these people deserve what we're about to do because of what their master did to us. They've got it coming. So don't think twice. Now this next part is so rich. I'm going to walk you through it slowly because this is the kind of thing that if you're reading the Old Testament on your own, you may zip through this quickly and miss some of this, but this is so incredible, so follow this. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. And this is very strange behavior 
She is the wife of a wealthy man. This is the equivalent of a nobleman. Like, she did not bow to anybody. David is an outlaw. He's a fugitive. He's a rogue. He's a dangerous person to associate with. That's his reputation now that he's been on the run from Saul. Obviously, Nabal had heard that, and that had filtered through him. And it's just a matter of time before the king's men eventually catch up to David, execute him, and no one's going to ever speak his name again. That's the reputation he's got now in the nation of Israel. And here is this very wealthy woman married to a hugely influential person, and she bows down to David. And it totally catches David off guard. He doesn't even know what to do with it. And what she begins to do is she begins to treat David as if he is already the man she hopes he will be. She begins to treat him as if he has already become the man that she hopes he will become. Do you know how powerful that is? Words matter. The way you speak into the life of someone else can make a massive difference in who they are now and in who they will become. Parents, the words you speak into the lives of your children make a massive difference into who they will become someday. So now, ladies, you need to take note of this, too. Because what she's doing here, this works on us. Even when we know what you're doing, it still works. I'm serious. You can just tell us, okay? I'm going to do that thing, okay? I'm going to do that thing where I make you feel better about yourself than you should. Here it goes. And we will fall for it every time. It's what we do. It's like you're patting us on the head. Like, you are so strong. I I bet you can take these trash cans out to the street with just one arm. It's like, I know what you're doing, but yeah, I could do that. You want to come watch? You know, I mean, it's just, that's who we are. It's it's what we do. It's hardwired into us. And so Abigail, uh, she's so smart, and this is so powerful, and then she begins to speak to David's potential. She starts to speak life into David. She begins to look past what he's about to do and speaks to his future. And it is so, so powerful what she does. And we get all this detail, and here's what happened. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. And now, again, this is, there's not a one-to-one correlation here, ladies. Please don't say, well, Pastor Jeff told us we're supposed to bow down to our man. No, no, I'm not saying that, okay? David's was a culture where this made sense. In our culture, this would be weird and highly cringy. So please don't, don't take that approach. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. When you marry someone whose name is fool, clue. Um, So let's pretend like he doesn't exist for a minute. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you. Now listen to this. It's like she's pulling a Jedi mind trick on David, okay? Okay has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, you're not going to do what you were planning to do. You know, I mean, she's just like, she is just kind of like doing a once-over on David here. Uh, And she's looking at all these guys, and they're chopping at the bit, ready to do some slaughter. They're all worked up. And she's like, since the Lord has kept you from this horrible thing, because I've already succeeded, you just don't know it yet. Let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And then she gives him credit for being a better man than he actually is. 
Guys, this is huge. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty. And she speaks to his future that God has already promised him. David, God is up to something great in you. God has a plan for your life. God has a future for you. And here's why. For you are fighting the Lord's battles. And then she says this. Even when you are chased, because she knows Saul is trying to find him. Everybody knows Saul is looking for David. By those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. Not really a phrase we use all that often. Uh, but this is the language here that is used for a wallet or a purse where you were to take something valuable, generally money, and you'd put it in this wallet or purse and you'd wrap cords all around it. That's what a treasure uh, pouch would be. They would wrap cords around it to make sure it's secure, and then you would tuck it into your belt so that nothing could get loose, nothing could fall away. It was secure. It was safe. So essentially what she's saying is even though someone is trying to steal your life, your life is tucked away safely with God. You are a valuable possession to him. But the lives of your enemies, now this is so brilliant. This is the kind of thing you read by too quickly when you read on your own. Now she takes David back to the moment when he was 15 years old facing Goliath. Look at the imagery here. Your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Whoo! This woman knew what she was doing or there was a prophetic spirit upon her because she was proclaiming some truth bombs into David's life that were just hitting home. It's like he's now back and it's all about the sling and the slingshot and all of a sudden he's in that moment when he was completely dependent on God and when he wasn't having to take matters into his own hands because he knew God was with him. And now she speaks to his future again in this next section. See, she essentially asked without asking this powerful question that we ask all the time. She basically asked David the question, what story do you want to tell when this is nothing but a story that you tell? What story do you want to tell when all of this, when this is just nothing but a story that you tell? When you're looking back at this incident, and this is a story that you're telling your grandkids, what story do you want to tell about this moment in time? It's a question that we prioritize here at Trilogy. What new stories do we want to be writing? What do we want to be known for? Uh, what do we want to help God do in our lives and in our community? And here's what she says. When, because it's going to happen, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. In other words, one day this is nothing but a story that you're going to tell. And what you do in this moment is going to be a permanent part of that story. The decision you make right now, these next few moments of your life, are going to be on the permanent record of who you are and what you've done. And I'm believing that you're going to change your mind because you don't want to tell a story of needless bloodshed, do you, David? Wow. And suddenly David comes to his senses. His emotional temperature starts to drop. And he sees things in a brand new way. And David says to Abigail, David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. 
thank God for your good sense <laughs> and sending all that food down here before you got here because I really enjoyed that too. Um, that was so smart. Bowed down before me, threw me totally off guard. Uh, I did not know what to do. And then I was putty in your hands. And now I see the way you see. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Now, Abigail, she's, like I said, she's a smart lady. Look what happens next. You know what happens next? The next part's amazing. You want to know? Okay, just making sure. Uh, verse 36, when Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party, I told you, sheep shearing time, and was celebrating like a king. Apparently, when you celebrate like a king, you drink to excess. He was very drunk. So she gets back, and he's just having this big party, and he's so drunk, and she thinks, this probably isn't a good time to tell him what has just happened. So she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. As a result, he had a stroke. And he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck him and he died. You can't make this stuff up. This is the stuff movies are made from, right? I mean, now if this was the part movies are made from, this next part is the stuff YouTube video titles are made from. Okay? She saved her husband's life only to have him die from his own anger and stupidity, and you won't believe what happened next. That's where we're headed. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Now, you ready for this? Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. It's right there in the text. Abigail quickly got on a donkey, attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers, became his wife, and they lived happily ever after the end. Isn't that great? I, I made that last part up, of course, that happily ever after is not in the Bible. Uh, but the, the rest of it is, he married her, and just to make sure we put this in its proper context, she became one of his wives. Okay? Nobody lives happily ever after when you become one of somebody's wives. Okay, it's just not the way it works out. But I'll let you read the rest of the story later. We'll talk about a little bit of this later on. In summary, here's what we have, okay? We have three characters, Nabal, David, and Abigail. And we have three responses. Three characters, three responses, but really only one hero in this story, and that was Abigail. Nabal, what does he do? He returns evil for good. David took care of his stuff, said, hey, I'm... Nabal just said, no, I'm not going to share with you. So good was done to him. He repays it with evil. David was about to return evil for evil, which makes sense, especially in this day and age in which they live. That was how David responded, okay? But Abigail sees things in a completely different way, and through her lens and with her unique perspective, essentially she returns good for evil. Evil had been done, evil was about to be done in a massive way to her and her family, and she returns good to the evil. Now again, Nabal, maniacal, nobody wants to be like him. David is more predictable because that's what was expected to return evil for evil. That's kind of just what we do. 
Um, but when you read the story, the one thing you can't miss is that Abigail, whereas Nabal was maniacal, David was predictable, Abigail is remarkable. Returning good for evil is remarkable. Her response is remarkable. Her judgment is remarkable. Her approach is remarkable. The whole story, she's just remarkable. And there's a sense in which she is way, way, way ahead of her time. See, during this time in history, the nation of Israel was in a covenant with God. We call it the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And in the Old Covenant, returning evil for evil was actually expected. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You read the Old Testament law, David's response, we think it's a bit barbaric and a bit over the top, but his men, they weren't like, now David, I, I, you know, I think you might be overreacting here. They didn't call him on it. They're like, yeah, let's put on our swords and go have some fun. That was just the world they lived in. Abigail is way ahead of her time because the new covenant, the New Testament, Jesus shows up and turns all of it upside down. In fact, here's something cool. The apostle Peter, who saw Jesus unjustly arrested, unjustly crucified, Peter saw Jesus who was innocent and sinless, treated horribly, and saw Jesus' response to that treatment. Peter, who saw all of that, wrote these words to Christians in the first century who were being unjustly treated. And he doesn't go all David on us. He goes all Jesus on us, and he says this. Here's what he wrote in 1 Peter 3, 9 through 11. Don't repay evil for evil. But that's natural. I know, he says, but don't repay evil for evil. I know, but look what they did. I know, but don't repay evil for evil. But they deserve it. Don't. Okay? Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. But what about social media? Surely you don't mean there. Yeah, even there. Instead, Pay them back with a blessing. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. In other words, whenever you are mistreated, you don't get even and go negative. You don't just ignore it and go neutral. You go positive and go blessing. That is what Scripture teaches us is the way we are to approach life. That is what Peter taught. That is what Abigail did. This is what Jesus lived. This is the unusual thing. Repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. In other words, if you're a Christian, if Peter says, hey, this is what we're called to, we knew we were going to be mistreated. Come on, Jesus promised this. They crucified our leader. What do you expect? How did you expect to be treated? He would say to Christians in the first century, that is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, get this, Peter in the first century quotes David from a thousand years earlier. When David is in journal mode and rethinking all of this stuff, and he's been through as a kid and as a 20-something, as a 30-something, and he kind of has perspective now, he's beginning to see the world in a different way, and this is what he writes. David journals the following. It's so New Testament-ish, what David writes here, as if it's pointing ahead to what is to come. Peter feels like it's appropriate to quote David in the first century, even though David lived in a century that was all about a different kind of world and a different perspective on just about everything. Peter quotes him, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. So Peter brings it first full circle and quotes David, who learned his lesson and wrote this. 
Peter is writing this to Christians who are being mistreated specifically because of their faith. And where did Peter get this crazy idea? Don't return evil for evil, but return evil for good. Respond to evil with a blessing. Where did he get it from? He got it from Jesus. He got it from watching Jesus. Jesus who hung on the cross and gazed out upon his executioners and said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's mind-blowing. He was there that day when Jesus made the famous statement that most of us have heard a thousand times and can finish the sentence for Jesus. When Jesus stood and said, you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, and then Jesus turns everything completely upside down, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Refusing to respond in kind. This is so powerful. Refusing to respond in the same way that they treated you. Refusing to respond in like kind might be the most Christ-like or incarnational thing that you could possibly do. You, in that moment, you become Jesus with skin on to a world who desperately needs to see Jesus. Not just to the person who treated you badly, but yes, to them, but to everyone else who is watching how you will respond in that moment. So as we close, three questions. The first question is this, do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? So think about that one. We don't, right? I mean, to get even with someone you don't like is to be like someone you don't like. Do you want to be like someone you don't like? No. Then why would you do what they do? Do you want to be like the person who treats you badly? No. Uh, why act like them? Uh, I don't think you're going to like it. Even it, it, it's easy, right? I mean, wouldn't it be better instead of being even to be ahead? And how do we pull ahead? You pull ahead by refusing to get even. Second question, this is a big one. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell personally? What story do I want told about me? Going back to the life of David, there he is sitting on his mule. Perhaps you could see the smoke and the campfires uh, where they're shearing sheep. He's a few hundred yards away from a very different outcome. And Abigail stops him and speaks to his future. And she says, do you really want this on your conscience? Is this the story you want to tell? How did you become king? Well, I went around and slaughtered innocent people, and finally everybody was so scared of me, they made me king. Is that the legacy you want, David? That's the question we should all ask. Every intersection we come to in life, we should ask that question. What story do I want to tell? Because every event in our lives becomes a part of the story of your life. Everything becomes a story that we tell. And what story, as you think about how you're being mistreated, about how wrong is being done to you or been said about you, what story do you want to tell when this is nothing other than a story that you tell? Do you really want your story to be, and I got even, I became just like the people who treated me wrong? And here's the third question. What would it look like for me to return good for evil? When you think about him, when you think about her, when you think about them, when you think about your ex, when you think about your former employer, when you think about what your son or daughter has done, your grown son or daughter, your prodigal son or daughter, when you think about your parents, when you think about your dad, when you think about that neighbor, what would it look like to, in that specific incident with that specific person, in that context, in that relationship, what would it look like for you to return good for evil? Blessing. What would it look like for you to be a blessing to someone who's hurt you or offended you? Not just do nothing, I'm just going to ignore them, but to be proactive and to actually do something. To do nothing, that's mercy. 
Here's what you deserve. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. But to actually do something they don't deserve, that's grace. And this is how our story intersects with the story of salvation. This is our best opportunity to be like our Father in heaven. It's how our story just lines up with the greatest story ever told. The greatest story ever told is God returning good for evil, God giving his son for our sin. That's the gospel. That's your story. And here's the thing, and I'm done. Generosity and compassion, that's kind of America now, isn't it? I mean, we've kind of gotten into that where generosity's cool. You know, you got all these, how many companies do you know that give a pair away when you buy a pair? I mean, this has become like the normal thing now for companies to do. Generosity and compassion, it's kind of American culture now. Everybody's generous. Everybody knows they need to be compassionate. I think it's a good thing. That's a Christian thing. It's a leftover of the Christian culture um, that's still a part of our culture. And I'm all for generosity and compassion, but in some ways it's become common. But this, returning good for evil, that's not expected. That takes you from predictable to remarkable. That sets you apart. And ultimately, it's the thing that will set you free. Because until you return good for evil, the person that has mistreated you controls you. They own you. And here's how you know, because you're like David on his donkey, headed down into the ravine, just rehearsing all the stuff you're going to do. And what you're allowing them to do is control your mind, control your actions, control the direction of your life. All the stuff you're just going to lay in wait and do later, all the th ways you want to get them back. And the only way to get free is to proactively do for someone exactly what they do not deserve, just like God has done for you. So here's what David would tell us. Here's what Abigail would tell us. Don't settle for even. Even is easy. Don't settle for predictable. Don't write a predictable story. Make it remarkable. Because at some point, this is... Nothing other than a story that you tell. In other words, do precisely for others what they don't deserve. And when you do, you're more like Jesus than you've ever been before. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we have, unfortunately, a lot of opportunities in life to get even. We have a lot of opportunities where we are mistreated, where we're wronged, where we're hurt, we don't deserve it. But God, in those moments, our natural instinct is to get back. It's to retaliate. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us, just like David, before we retaliate, before we go down that path, that you would get a hold of our hearts. That, God, we would have the wisdom and the grace and the miracle by your design that we have the capacity in Christ to act differently, to repay evil with good. And Jesus, I pray that you would help. Maybe some of us are in that. Man, we're already there. We've got the crosshairs already aimed. The, the person that wronged us or the company or the organization or the group that wronged us, they're already in our target. They're already in our sights, and we're ready to fire. We're ready to go off. And God, maybe today is that moment where this message is Abigail to them. And God, you're going to get a hold of their hearts and help them, Lord, to go in a different direction. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to bless those around us, whether they've treated us good, badly, 
or indifferent, God, let us be a blessing to those around us. Jesus, give us the strength that you had when you said, Father, forgive them as you hung on the cross to those who put you there. Holy Spirit, equip us to do that because we can't do it on our own. Lord, I pray as we do, it wouldn't make us look good, but it would make you look good. That, Jesus, you would be glorified in a powerful, powerful way through our story. God, I pray this week you would help us to look for opportunities to be a blessing in circumstances where they don't deserve it. Let us bless people. We thank you, Lord. Go with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.